Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 2nd, 2016. This is episode 1722 of the Survival Podcast, and it's just Jack Tuesday. This is where I take an individual subject and go into it. I started thinking about doing uh, kind of a back-to-basics prepping show today, and I, I need to do those from time to time, but a, a question came up in my head. With all the talk of being prepared uh, among modern survivalists, homesteaders, preppers, etc., how many people are actually prepared for life? And how, how well are we preparing our young people for life, for living? How well prepared are people to survive and thrive the next 10 years if everything kind of stays the way it is? Or if everything gets worse, but it's not the end of the world? Or if things actually get better? And opportunities are more, not less available. How prepared are people? How prepared, my friend, are you for life? Now, I think the problem is as survivalists, we say to ourselves, since I'm a survivalist, if I live the next 10 years and I don't end up in prison or in the gutter or destroying my liver with alcoholism or something like that, I, I've, I've made it. Well, the first rule of survivalism is to wake up the next day. That's no doubt, but it's only part of the equation. I, I think, to me, if, if you're prepared for life, if I had to summarize it a little bit, um, I would say if you're prepared for life, you cannot just function but thrive no matter the conditions around you. You can adapt, think on your feet, and learn whatever you need to learn. You can take risks and be okay with failure because you know how to mitigate risks. This is a short summary, but it is indeed prepared for life. How prepared are you under that definition? How prepared will your children be? How prepared will their children be? How prepared is the average 20-something in America for life, under that definition? And middle-agers, you're not off the hook. How, how prepared is the average 40-something? Maybe midlife crises are the point where people realize they weren't prepared for life all along. Anyway, we'll dig into that more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's take care of our sponsors They do a lot to help take care of you by helping support the show Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. 
It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, Do not forget to get your premium membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1722 because the episode is 1722. I have two for you from Alex Shrug today, and man, I can flip a coin. I love both of these characters from history. True American patriots that helped form this republic. That, that's who these two people are. The first one, he's a guy. Mrs. Mrs. Silence Do Good Won't Shut Up. I'll tell you who he is in a minute, because that's the one we're going to read. Many of you already know. Next one, Samuel Adams doesn't know jack about beer yet. Let's read about Mrs. Silence Duguid, who won't shut up. She ain't no lady. She is Benjamin Franklin as a teenager. Franklin is apprenticed to his older brother James as a printer. James publishes the New England Current, so Benjamin submits a few articles for the newspaper, but James refuses to print them. The Current is one of the first newspapers to accept letters to the editor, so young Franklin writes a letter under the pen name Mrs. Silence Do Good, 
actually spelled D-O-G-O-O-D is one word, but pronounced do good. She is a struggling widow with wit, wisdom, and the subjects ranging from the absurdity of women's hoop skirts to the blind zealotry of many religious leaders. Her letters are an instant success as the do-good letters become more and more critical of the government. James Franklin is taken into custody until he reveals who Mrs. Do-Good really is. He has no idea. The government is not the only one seeking Mrs. Do-Good's identity. Several men have offered marriage proposals. After James is released, Benjamin will break his apprenticeship and hightail it to Philadelphia. His brother is very angry. The Do-Good name, this is my take by Alex Shrug. the Do-Good name came from the title of a book on do-good projects for the community. Over the years, Benjamin Franklin wrote under several pen names, including the trademark Anthony Afterwit and the Mathwiz Poor Richard Saunders. The elderly Pennsylvanian, he said the pen name allowed him to convey a message specific to his audience. It also allowed him to express his wit and humor more freely. Obviously, Alex Shrugged is a pen name. I do not fear being found out. I use it because it allows me the freedom of my opinion without worry that my friends and relatives will be forced to defend me when I write something controversial. My family and friends love me. They don't always agree with me. Using a pen name allows them to do some deniability and allows me some flexibility. Yeah, I, I think what's actually interesting, though, is history's full of this, where someone is attacked for their opinions. It, you know, it, it really is. And it's not just by government and authority and what have you, because today there's a lot of people that express opinions And they're attacked by the public, the trained monkeys of society. That's that's what we are, a bunch of trained monkeys. So when somebody starts saying something that we don't like, we attack them. Uh, we'll talk about how that plays into things later today. But the reality is that if you're saying something and enough people are paying attention to it to upset somebody, clearly you're saying something a lot of people agree with and want to hear. Otherwise, there'd be no need to attack a person like that because they would just disintegrate and go away. My take by Jack Spearco. With that, um, I want to remind you about the Member Support Brigade real quick. Hey, if you want to support this show and the work I do, um, consider joining the MSB. I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I think if you're a person trying to get your shit together in life, that when I'm done with this today's show, you're probably going to join the MSB just to thank me for it because I am really going to turn it on today. That's all I'm going to say about that. Survivalpodcast.com and go to Members to learn more. All right. Before I get into the main topic of today's show, I put this at the end because I know a lot of you skipped the intro segment, and that's fine. But I'd like you to listen to me, if you would, and consider maybe doing me a favor right now. Um, I'm going to have to let go a sponsor. In fact, not really let go. A sponsor that's kind of financially in trouble, and I'll tell you who it is in just a second, has asked to not be billed anymore, so of course I won't. Uh, but I'm going to continue to run his advertising. In fact, this is earlier in the month that he asked, and I ran his ad yesterday. It's Sawtooth Tactical. And, and the reason is he's just put it as I'm falling on hard times. So I, he doesn't have enough business uh, to continue advertising. And he has to cut expenses and things like that. I understand that. He's a loyal sponsor. He's been with me for more than five years. So I'm going to continue to run his advertising for free for a while. Uh, that's what I can do. Here's what you could do today. There's probably something you've been kicking around the idea about buying that's in the tactical world. Consider going to Sawtack and buying something from him today. Spend ten bucks, spend fifteen bucks, spend twenty bucks on something you were going to buy sooner or later this year anyway, and give them a little lift because the sponsors, I say it, they do a lot to help make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. They do. 
They, they, they are a part of the support system that allows me to live the life I live and do the good that I do. And without them, you know, I could still do it. I could, I could get rid of the sponsorship program. I really could. Um, and I, over the years, I've thought about it, just telling all my sponsors, hey, I'm going to run this for another year, and then we're just going to stop taking sponsors. We're just going to push that out and make the show non-commercial. Uh, because you guys are so great and supporting me, I could do that. But, you know, I, I'd have to replace that with another, jeez, 500 members to make the revenue up. And, you know, I, it just it doesn't make sense. And my sponsors have really done a lot to take good care of this audience and granting discounts and fixing any kind of customer service problems or whatever. And SawTag, man... Like the only person I put in their category with lack of complaints is Berkey guy. I mean, just I don't think I've ever had a complaint about an order of Sawtack ever. It, it is a phenomenally well-run company, and my honest opinion is that they're going to have to look at a new way of doing business because the reason I think that they're failing is that the type of products that they're selling are always available somewhere else for less. And as long as it's not actually a gun product, it's probably on Amazon with free shipping. And that's the, the switch in the market. So I don't think that we can just fix the problem, but I think that we could all maybe pick up an item or two, recognize the value of a small business owner, and give them a little buffer maybe from that, from a little bounce in business to maybe figure out how to transition to do things in a way that might m help him recover. Uh, I, I, I really like Jeff over there. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated company. Been with us a long time. And, and I'm asking you to consider buying from them today. And if you want, there's a discount if you're an MSB member. I mean, they're going to continue to do the discount program. So um, I just think you take care of your own. And when somebody's been with you more than five years, they're your own. All right, with that, let's get into today's show. Um I want to start out with a quote that I'm doing for two reasons. Number one, it absolutely applies to the show, and it's the great way to get us thinking in the right direction before we go into asking the question, are you prepared for life? What are the areas you should be prepared for life in, 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 in my opinion, in your education as a young person? And then what do you do about the fact that it's not happening for your kids or your grandkids or your nieces and nephews, and it probably didn't happen for you, and you need to fix your own shit and make sure that they get these things as they grow up? Um, and it's a quote by Robert Heinlein, and it is as follows, and many of you have probably heard it. A human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, Write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, swap, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly, specialization is for insects. It does set the tone for the show today. And we're not teaching generalist knowledge, and we haven't for a long time. For a very long time. Likely some of you that are, are grandparents weren't taught generalist knowledge in your educational uh, history as, as a youth. But I think as we've gotten to more and more recent generations, the problem's worse because 
at least 50 years ago, people were in situations in life and their living quarters and where they lived and how they were raised where they learned a lot of generalist knowledge outside of school. So it compensated. And as, as each generation has worked to, to, to make things better for the next generation, understand it's a noble goal, but it has an unintended consequence. As we make things better, we also tend to make things easier. And those are two different things, and we should see them that way. And I think the number one problem children have today and young adults have today is that their parents made their lives dramatically too easy. Now, that doesn't mean that your, your child shouldn't have opportunities you didn't, and you shouldn't work to make sure that they do have a better life than you had. I think that's very noble. But I also think that part of that is you let children struggle, and you challenge children to stand up to that struggle and get through it. You encourage them, and you kick them in the ass when you need to. And we haven't been doing that for a long time. And likely, again, most people listening to this show, you probably grew up without enough of that yourself. I'm not letting anybody off the hook here. So that's one reason I read this quote. The other reason I read it is because if I did this show and didn't read that quote, 4,000 of you would email that quote to me. So I'm heading that off at the pass. Now, before I go deeper into this, I actually want to read another quote that at first you might think doesn't really fit with today's show, but I'm going to explain to you how it does. And if you go to the survivalpodcast.com and look up today's episode, you'll see a little meme that I made. It's this beautiful picture of just, just snow-covered mountain with just some, some trees on it and uh, just white to set the, the scene for the photo. And this is a quote from Jack London. I'm going to read this quote to you. It's fairly long. And then I'm going to explain why I'm reading it. But I'm going to read it first. Because I think if I read it first, it'll have a greater impact on you as an individual. Nature has many tricks wherewith she convinces man of his finity. The ceaseless flow of the tides, the fury of storm, the shock of earthquake, the long roll of heaven's artillery. But the most tremendous... The most stupefying of all is the passive phase of the white silence. All movement ceases. The sky clears. The heavens are as brass. The slightest whisper seems sacrilege, and man becomes timid, affrightened of the sound of his own voice. Soul speck of life journeying across the ghostly wastes of a dead world, he trembles at his audacity realizes that his is a maggot's life, nothing more. Strange thoughts arise, unsummoned, and the mystery of all things strives for utterance. And the fear of death, of God, of the universe comes over him. The hopes of the resurrection and the life, the yearning for immortality, the vain striving of imprisoned essence. It is then... If ever man walks alone with God. And that's from The White Silence by Jack London, one of, in my opinion, the greatest authors of all time. When I read that, it gives me chills. It makes me feel, and that's part of why I've read it. As most of you know, I, I, I call myself religiously a deist. I, I don't follow organized faiths at all. I, I believe in a higher power. I don't try to explain it. I just know that it's there, I feel it, and I understand that it exists. 
And a lot of people think that's not a spiritual viewpoint. Well, what it is, it's not a preachy viewpoint. I don't try to convert people to that line of thinking. It's just who and what I am. But I, I feel very connected to our universe, to energy, to life, to all things, to other people. And I think that truly successful people have to find some level of spiritualism. So that's that's part of this. And, and, and I believe that there are people that call themselves atheists that are actually quite spiritual and would be more technically accurately called an agnostic. And then when you talk to them, they're not even really that. We won't get into that debate. But it ends up that they have this belief of this higher power of themselves. They just don't choose to call it a god. And, and that's fine as well. And I the reason I kind of qualify this before I go forward is I want to point out that no matter what you believe religiously, this quote can apply to you. It can make you understand what I want you to understand as we go through this. One of the real reasons that I feel that people are not prepared for life and not able to do the things that we're about to talk about is that their life was made too easy and they've never struggled enough to actually reflect on where they're helpless and how they can still figure out to get through even that. Some pipe, some, you know, some people might call it a, a survival situation, to be tested to the extreme. And I, but I don't think it needs to be that. I don't think one needs to be lost in the great white silence and fear that they will never get home and come home with fingertips missing from frostbite to, to gain what you gain from those types of experiences. I think what is lacking in a lot of people's lives is having taken enough time in actual silence to contemplate who you are and why you're here. What it is that you really want to do for yourself, for the people around you, and for the world. And because of that, people end up walking a path that was predetermined for them instead of the path they actually belong on. And you can't walk that way for very long until you feel very unhappy and very miserable. And no matter how many shiny plastic things you shove into your life to try to fill the hole that exists because you're walking the wrong path, well, it won't work. It might be like temporary relief. It's, it's, it's the heroin of the drug addict who feels good, but when you come down the other side, you actually feel worse until you crash to rock bottom. That, that's what I think is missing in many people's lives. I think many people could do well to take a week, even in very comfortable camping conditions, alone. Not with the kids, not with the wife. And sometimes this might take, if you're in a committed relationship, saying this is just something I have to do. Or to find some way to separate yourself from all of the confusion. For me, it was a walk from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire many years ago on the Appalachian Trail. I just read a post from somebody on Facebook that really made me feel great. This person through-hiked the Appalachian Trail. That means they went from Georgia to Maine. Uh, well, I hiked about a third of the trail. They hiked the whole thing. And when they came back, they decided, I'm just not going back to the life I had before. And they're now building a business. And I won't even say what they're doing, because it doesn't matter. See, I, I want to try to stay off of like what you should do in your life, because it's really more along the lines of giving you tools and helping you develop your own tools so that you can do what you want to do in your life. I think we spend way too much time with people being told what they should do, how they should think, and having other people define for them what is success. Again, it's about the path. Imagine that you're told that X, Y, and Z are success, 
but what you really want in your life is A, B, and C. But you've been convinced that X, Y, and Z are success. So you work really hard. You do the, the, the true hard work. You follow the rules. You, you follow the path. And you get to X, Y, Z. But it turns out that it's not what you want. You're actually more miserable, probably, than the people that are still trying to get there and haven't yet. Because they still believe in the facade. The journey is engaging enough to keep you interested. But once you achieve the success, then you feel hollow because you realize, well, this is not what it's cracked up to be. In fact, this is bullshit. That's how I feel about my track in sales. And that even came after my long walk. But I convinced myself that was what was successful. Making more money, having an expense account, traveling all over the place, not having to physically work as hard as my father did as a coal miner and as a guy that owned a tire shop and a mechanic shop. And when I got there, thank God I got there as young as I did. That's all I can say. To be able to reach that level of success before 30, I think saved my life. Because it let me be miserable for about 10 years. And by 38, I'm like, screw this. I'm going to go be a podcaster and do what I really want to do. And what I want to try to do today is people say, you know, learn from my mistakes. Well, learn from my mistakes. Cut this, cut this off as early as possible and figure out what you want to do. And again, many of you, I think, need the great white silence. It doesn't necessarily have to be the great white silence, but you need a separation for even a couple days. No computers, no internet, no news, no nothing. Take a cell phone with you. Don't use it. It's there only if somebody has an emergency. You know, if somebody has an emergency, you'll, you'll, you'll respond and nothing else. Leave me alone. Let me think. Think about your life. Take a walk. Get away from people for two days even. And I think it'll transform you and make you able to really do the things that I want to talk about today. But I want to start and talk, out, talk about 14 things that I think should be taught to people so that they can be prepared for life. And since we talk about a lot of these all the time, I'm only going to go briefly through them so the show's not four hours long. But... There's 14 things that I, I think we should actually be teaching children. By the time they're in like fifth grade, we should be really working on this. And schools aren't going to do it. And I'll talk about that at the end. And this is not jack bashing the public education system today. Because it's, again, it's not just public ed that doesn't teach our children these things. I learned most of these things from my grandfather. So in the 1980s, they already weren't teaching these things in school. And, and, and my father, I believe, learned from these things from my grandfather and from the elders around him. And it's because we were in a, an area that I didn't know it, but it was a poor area. My father referred to it as a white man's ghetto as I got older. I, I didn't even get it when he said that. I get it now, but I didn't back when he used to tell me that. I'm like, what do you mean? This place is great in a lot of ways. You know, there's, yeah, there's some things I don't like about it. There's more stuff to do, but it's, it's a great place, great people. So we were in a place that was behind the rest of the country. And there's still places like that. I think that's why people that come from those places, when they do decide to go out and take on the world, end up really successful. Because they've had to learn these things. So this is not a public education or government school problem. Okay, It's not even a private school lacking, because a lot of private schools lack all this stuff too. At least to the degree necessary to enable people. It's a societal problem. You know, One of my goals, I want America to become, a, once again, emboldened by a, a culture of preparedness. Well, we can't be prepared for disaster if we're not even prepared for life. 
So step one, and I've got these all written down in the show notes, so you, you don't have to take notes with this show or anything. If you're in a car, just listen. In fact, I would say all of you, don't. It, some of you do take notes to shows and stuff, don't. Listen, all these steps are there. Go get them later and start working back through them, maybe at your time alone. Number one is real financial management. When I was in school, we did learn, because I took some business courses, how to balance a checkbook. A lot of kids, though, come out of school, they don't even know how to balance a checkbook. And with online banking, who the hell needs that anymore, right? I mean, that's that's part of the, the technology that's there. But you should still be able to like understand how that number gets there. But they did. I did learn that in school. You know, and I did learn basic mathematics. I, I had an economics class where we had a project where we were given 10,000 fake dollars and told to pick a stock or two to invest in and track it over certain weeks and see if we made or lost money. Well, that's helpful. No, that was stupid. That's not how you invest. You don't pick a stock and invest for six weeks and see where it goes and get a grade based on how good you did. It's preposterous. There were no tools online for research at the time. And in the, in the class, you would think that when we were given this project, that you would have had some lessons, like here's how you evaluate a company. This is what a, a P.E. ratio is. This is this is how a stock is priced fairly or not fairly. These are influences on the market that cause it to go up and down. Now we got five minutes on supply and demand, and then we went on to other things as far as economic theory, like convincing us that socialism with a backhanded way was a good idea by shitting on capitalism, and then told to be capitalists and go research stocks and see if we could make some money. And, and, the, and the, 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 the people that did good, like me, you know what we did? We called stockbrokers, said, hey, I'm a kid, I'm doing a project, this is what it is, could you tell me a stock or two that might be a good play right now? And since you had no money and you were just a kid and there was no risk for the guy, he said, yeah, go, go buy Texas Instruments or whatever. And you go do that, and you ended up doing pretty good because there were some indicators in the market about that time that certain things were going to take off, some contracts coming out, etc. So we learned, but the rest of the class didn't learn anything. They just randomly, like, they picked companies they liked, companies they knew, companies they heard of. You know, kid goes to, the, goes to McDonald's and the drive through line's long, so they say, well, McDonald's. And buying McDonald's in 1986 was a good move if you were going to hold it for a while, but not for six weeks. So that's even just investing, though, but that's not even really financial management. Real financial management is an understanding. You don't even need to worry about investing until you've saved enough money to have a significant amount of money to invest. When we go to work and they tell us to put 5%, 10% of 401ks and not worry about it. That's not financial management. Why do we do it then? Because we weren't taught financial management. We weren't taught the number one rules. Number one rule, stay out of debt, save money. That's it. Stay out of debt, save money. Stay out of debt, save money. Put inflation, bullshit. Stay out of debt, save money. When you're starting to save money, you got $500. If you were risking it in the stock market, it went up 10%, you made 50 bucks. Big deal. You'd be better off instead of worrying about making 50 bucks with interest, go out and make another 500 bucks and end up with 1,000. We, we, we're not taught, hey, listen, you don't just get a job and then put 10% away. You find ways to make money. You find ways to create surpluses. Whenever you create a surplus outside of your standard income, take a big chunk of it and stick it in a box. Whether that box is a bank account or an actual box, doesn't matter. When you have windfalls and things you're capable of, create this, 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 this buffer for yourself. 
Imagine if our kids were doing this from the age of like 14, 10, 12, 14 forward. Some of you I know in this audience have kids, little entrepreneurial jobs and stuff they're doing, and you're making them save a significant portion of that money. And, and like, so what's real financial management? Real financial management is, okay, John, you just took a hundred dollar investment in materials. You made a product and you sold it for $400. We don't need new math. We don't need common core. That's pretty simple. John, you made $300. Now, that $300 is a profit. Since this worked, you might want to do it again. So out of your $300, we're going to take $100 and reinvestment so we can come up with a new inventory. Does that make sense? And the, any kid that was smart enough to do it in the first place, go, huh? Yeah, it is. It makes perfect sense. Now, you did work hard, so it makes sense that some of this money might be for you to enjoy yourself. So let's take $100 and put it in kind of the, the flexible piggy bank world. You can spend this money. You shouldn't consider it's burning a hole in your pocket, but it's your money. It, it's put into kind of a fund uh, or a piggy bank or a jar or a, a firebox or whatever. That When you decide you want something, since you earn that money, you go take it and you go buy what you want. But when you do, think about how hard you worked for it. This third piece, you know, we're not sure you're always going to be able to repeat this, so we're going to take this and put it in a different box or jar or piggy bank or account. And this is long-term savings. You leave that money alone. Now go do it again. And see if you can do it better this time. And what happens is eventually John goes, hey, I could do a lot more, but it's going to cost more to do it. Well, guess what? That long-term money, that can be reinvested into your business. Because that is an investment that grows that money. Now, see how simple that is? We don't teach people that. I'm biting my tongue to not talk about why right now. The next thing we don't teach is we don't teach troubleshooting. We don't actually teach anyone anymore, except in a box, the art of troubleshooting. To actually look at a problem and say, this isn't working, how do I fix it? So if somebody goes to school to become a mechanic, they'll learn troubleshooting like I did in the military, of, okay, this vehicle doesn't work, here's the troubleshooting process for this vehicle. But if we only learn that, and that's how we teach with specialization, and that's how we function professionally, then, yeah, you, your, your truck's not working, a mechanic can troubleshoot it, but if you come over to somebody's house and they've got a little business set up, and that business isn't making the money that it should, they can't look at the business process and, and troubleshoot it. Well, they should be able to. Trust me, I was a mechanic. I know it's the same thing. When I would work with salespeople, when I was a sales manager, I would troubleshoot their sales process. This is different than criticizing it or saying, hey, you were supposed to learn this script and you didn't learn it exactly. We would look at it and we would analyze when you were working this deal and you thought you were going to close it, where do you feel that it fell apart? And then we can troubleshoot. We can go from that point backwards to figure out, well, what caused that? Because it probably wasn't that point that actually was the problem. It was further back in the system. So we can troubleshoot that and we can fix it. Once you understand troubleshooting, and this is why I love permaculture. Permaculture, if you really learn the science of it, is troubleshooting. It will teach you troubleshooting. So once you understand troubleshooting, you can educate yourself so you can fix any problem. Now, you may determine, hey, it doesn't make sense for me to invest my time and energy to fix this problem. I'm going to pay somebody to do it because financially that makes sense. That's fine. You may also be more likely to do the type of thing that I do. 
When I come up with that new problem, I, I will usually commit to it, even if the financial equation doesn't work out, to fixing it myself. Once. Now I know how to do it. Now I can actually make a decision. They're back to financial management. All these are holistic. That I actually know how many hours it'll take me how to do that. And if I had to, I could do it myself. But financially, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to use the economy and the market to help somebody else by rendering them value in return for their value. No one learns that in school. Which leads me right to the next thing that we don't teach in school. We don't teach our children. We don't teach our adults. This is taught in engineering class. It is taught in architectural classes. It's taught in a lot of different disciplines. But again, it's usually isolated to those disciplines. It's systems thinking. We don't think in systems. We think in linear chains. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, the end. Okay? We don't think about the holistic interactions of systems. That this system over here actually affects that system over there. If it's business management, right, then the system that I have in place for, let's say, salespeople to receive leads and start working leads to convert them to sales actually is affected by the system of how are those leads created in the first place. But we, we, we break those into two things and we, we isolate two departments in a company. And we do that for a lot of reasons. One is we don't want people in a large company talking to each other. We want them to shut up and do their freaking job. That, and I'm not about me. I'm talking about society as a whole. That's how the people that run large companies want them to run. They don't want you talking to the guy in marketing if you're in sales. They want you to both shut up and follow the system because the system has certain knowns and they're willing to settle with those knowns. Because when you're managing 20,000 people, you have to. It's one of the limitations of really large companies. But if you actually want to be a person that can build a business for yourself and wear multiple hats to get it off the ground, you have to think of that systems manner. But it's, it's bigger than that. So it, systems thinking and troubleshooting are so intrinsically linked. Because to troubleshoot a system, we have to understand the system, so we have to think of the system's level. And to me, the, the tighter a system is, is the closer it resembles how the things in the system would behave anyway. If, if no one was there to manage that system, how, how much chaos would be introduced? So if I'm managing pasture with cattle, it's completely natural for cattle to eat grass, to poop on it, to walk the, the grass litter and poop into the ground. They'll do that all by themselves. It's a very natural behavior. The only thing that I need to do to make that system give me the results I'm looking for is control where, where the cattle are, how long they're there, and where they go next. It's a very tight system, as long as the, the manager has the discipline to make that happen. Because the cow needs nothing other than go here, go there, move now. To mimic a completely natural system, which is large herds moving on grasslands that stick together and move frequently, because there's nowhere for them to be restricted by, and they need to be moving to protect themselves from predators. And once they get a place worn down, they go to the next place naturally. So I only have to change one main thing there. I just have to control the movement because they are contained. That is a tight system. And the more ways I can fit that naturally into the manager's existence, if, it's, if I can find a manager who likes to take a walk twice a day and doesn't mind moving a couple tapes 
and I put the system in place so that everything's already set up, well, that guy just takes a walk every day and the cattle follow suit. That's a tight system. You only get there with systems thinking. Most systems are inherently loose systems because they rely on behaviors of the, the living things within them that are not natural. So an office is not a tight system. It has to be managed heavily because it's so loose. Because it requires that you get up in the morning, shit shower and shave, clean up, dress in a way you probably wouldn't really dress if you didn't have to. I don't think most of you that have office jobs that wear button-up shirts and slacks and, and shiny shoes and ladies' nice dresses or pantsuits or whatever it is, that you, you hang out like that on Saturday, unless you work Saturday. Well, if you don't dress like that on Saturday, you're inherently saying, this is unnatural for me. This is not what I want to do. So you're going to eat, cram a breakfast in, get in a mobile metal coffin, roll down to an office, spend eight hours, nine hours with people you don't want to be around, deal with bullshit you don't want to deal with, get in your car and come home. That's the weakness of that system. Now, there's a macro system that says, if you don't do it, you will starve. You'll be a deadbeat. We've programmed you from birth to do this. And that's made you a human cow. So the, 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 the company understands this dynamic, even if they don't understand the way I'm describing it, they get, you'll show up. So they build the system as though that is an inherent behavior. And you wonder why there's problems with management. This is systems thinking. The next one is, we don't teach real historical content context. We just don't. We have history classes and we learn a whole bunch of shit, but it doesn't really matter. We don't really focus on the story of what happened. See, we do the history segment every day. I don't give a shit if you don't remember what year, who did what. I just care that you remember that somebody did something like that and this is what happened. And, and, and that is the, 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 the value of history. What we do with schooling is we say, what year was the Declaration of Independence signed? And a lot of people just know. Right? Because that's a really common question. But then we also have people, you know, like, oh, I don't know. What year did uh, Madame Curie discover radium? I don't know. I know kind of around the time. But what I actually know about that is she was working with a substance she didn't understand and eventually died from it. That's actually a much more important thing than the year that it happened. That when you're working with something that you don't understand, it can be dangerous. That's historical context. We don't teach that. The moral of the story is what historical context is. So that's why I love the history segments that we do with Alex. I know most of you, if, if I said, well, you know, tell me one of the things that happened in, I don't know, recently, 1715. You may not remember But if we start talking about, if you listen to the history segment, if you take it in, if we start talking about whatever the lesson was, you have context in that lesson, even if you don't remember the people or the dates or the facts, you have context in that lesson that you can now apply to your life whenever that shows up. We don't teach history that way. We don't teach the story. We teach the facts. If you teach the facts... All you can do is memorize and parrot the facts. If you teach the story and focus on the moral lessons of the story, including the limitations of what... We look at stuff in history and go, that was really wrong. But we have to put ourselves in the context of the time and saying, well, that was wrong, but it was a hell of a lot better than everything else going around, 
at the time, and therefore it was part of the steps that led to the progress that allows us to look back now and see it as wrong. Because the problem people had it with the time is it was it wasn't the way it was being done. It was too easy, it was too nice or whatever. It, it threatened the people that were doing it even worse. Boy, why don't we teach history that way? Bite my tongue till the very end, man. I can't skip ahead. Real historical context doesn't exist in our educational system. It doesn't exist in our society. The short-term memory of people, or short-term-like memory of people of events. But people today think of World War II as being like that fast. Now, given our war on terror has been going on almost 20 freaking years, I can understand why, right? But when you think of World War II in context, most people think, okay, there was a war going on in the world, and they needed the United States. Because this is how it's taught. They needed the United States. It was going on in some place in Europe with these German Nazi guys and the Japanese somehow were involved with that. I don't know. And we weren't going to go because we didn't really want to. And then the Japanese bombed us in Pearl Harbor. We got pissed off. We went over there and kicked ass and took names in both fronts, saved the world. And we, we act as though that required no significant sacrifice. We, we don't understand the sacrifice that occurred For all those other nations that weren't buffered by a freaking ocean, first of all, for the you know the bombing of Britain and, and the and the atrocities from our side, like the bombing of Dresden, look that up. Ugh. The firebombing of to Tokyo, which killed way more people than the atomic bombs. But that's what we think. We dropped the atomic bomb. We realized it was horrible. We'd never do it again. But it was a we, we did it. And it's all then the United States became the leader of the world. Five years. Five years. Put that in context. This is 2016. Five years ago, it was 2011. Think about, yes, how fast time seems to move, but think about what you were doing in 2011. Realize how long ago that was. And imagine now from that point to here being at war. A global war. We don't even teach that context anymore. It's microwave thinking. I remember when I was a kid, uh, microwaves I didn't know nothing about. They were expensive. They only had them in like restaurants and stuff, and I, I didn't even know that. I went to see my grandmother who was working at a diner. She asked me if I wanted a piece of apple pie. I said, yeah. She goes, you want it, want it warmed up? I said, how long will it take? She said, not long. She stuck it in a microwave, pushed a button, came back over in like 30 seconds. I didn't believe it was hot, and it was screaming hot. I didn't understand. I didn't get it. I was amazed. Today, a kid's like, why is it not hot already? Microwave thinking, we've applied that to our historical context. The next one, mechanical comprehension. I'm not talking about being able to fix a diesel truck. But I'm, I am also talking about a little bit more than two weeks on simple machines in physics class and learning what a lever and a fulcrum is and writing it down on a test and thinking, I don't give a shit. And, you know, maybe that one's so simple it stays with you and you see some things in life that reminds you of it. So it kind of sticks with you, but you don't really care. No, I, I'm talking about having a mechanical understanding that allows you to look at things and understand how they work. And again, not when you hear mechanic, a lot of times you think of you know auto mechanics. But I'm talking about just the physical mechanics that, that run our world. That when you look at a door, you understand that if you were to want to hold it open, that if you put the weight closer to the hinges, it would have more, more ability to hold than further out because the door, in fact, itself is a lever. And even if you didn't call it a lever, that you just look at it and go, or if you did it wrong, you'd think about it and go, oh, we call this common sense, by the way. 
It's what it used to be anyway. A person of reasonable intelligence would be able to figure it out. And what's happened is the amount of things that fit in that definition has been shrunk by trying to make everything idiot-proof. And a lot of it is because we don't have mechanical comprehension as people. You know, people look at a shelf and don't understand why it's failing. Just tighten up all the stuff on it and see what happens. We won't take, like, that's seen as a risk. It could break it. It's already broken. See if you can fix it. How many of you when your kids took shit apart to see how it worked? And when you took it apart, you realized you had no idea how it worked. But, hey, you, you learned that you broke your toy, but the world didn't end. I did. I took electronic stuff apart to see how it worked. And at a young enough age, I, all, there's all kinds of cool stuff in there. I started pulling it out. Can't put it back now. It was soldered in there, and you don't know what solder is because you're six, but, you know, that doesn't happen as much as it used to. And it's discouraged. You know, you'll break it. So what? It's Chinese crap. You probably learn more from breaking it than from you telling them not to, and then it goes back in a drawer, it doesn't get used for a couple of years, and you give it away to charity. We, we don't learn basic mechanical comprehension. We really don't. Next one. What I call interactive ecology. Not that that's a tree that's deciduous, right? And that means leaves fall off of it. It's a good start, basic understanding of ecology. And that leaf falls to the ground and it builds soil. Great. But we need to go out and touch it. We need to look at it when it's green. We need to look at it when it's, when it's in color and the chlorophyll's gone from it. We need to dig down in the soil. We need to feel it. We need to understand that we're part of that, that that's, that that's intrinsically linked to, linked to our own health. That food comes from a field, not a grocery store. That, that sometimes it doesn't work, it dies, there's things that eat it, there's pests to be understood. What, what water's supposed to be like? Why is preposterous that we have to spend so much money to treat water because we've damaged it in the first place? To understand that When water falls from the sky, assuming we're not doing massive amounts of air pollution, especially like we did in the 70s and 80s, we did clean up a lot of that, that when it falls from the sky, it should be pure and safe to drink, so why don't we just collect it and drink it? Instead of pumping water through pipes that can become contaminated and destroy an entire city. But there's places with less water. And there's places with more water. But there's animals that are harmless, and there's animals that are dangerous. Not everything's dangerous. I remember I was sitting at a train station in Philadelphia on my way to, to Delaware back when I had that sales job. And there's a little kid, and he, he was running at trying to pet one of the pigeons. And his mother's like, no, they're nasty. They're nasty. It's a pigeon. It's a bird. It's not nasty. I'm sure when it poops in a place all the time, that place gets nasty. Well, the bird itself, this mythology that it's a flying rat, it's a bird. Kid wants to, and the kid's not to catch the bird anyway. He'll learn more by chasing the bird than you telling him a bird's nasty. All you've taught him is to be afraid of wildlife, to be afraid of animals. It's ironic to me how many people are afraid of snakes. I just posted a video of a young lady pulling a whole bunch of water snakes out on Facebook. Some people are very, very afraid of snakes. I think to myself, how many of you people that are terrified of the snake because you've been conditioned to believe it's dangerous? That's all it is, conditioning. We'll sit down in my living room and drink a beer, and my 140-pound German Shepherd 
with, with, with canine teeth that are two inches long will come over to you and you'll scratch them behind the ear. If, and if I, if I handed you a harmless small rat snake that grew up tame, that, that won't bite if you poke it in the face, and if it did bite, it's got a head the size of your pinky, tiny pinprick teeth, And it could chew on you, and you wouldn't even know it was biting you. It feels like somebody was scratching you until you looked at it. would freak out. Now, the truth is, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. And it's because we're disconnected from interactive ecology. And it's not maybe important that you get over your fear of snakes. If you really have that fear, there's things that I don't like. I, I don't mind spiders like walking around the house and all, but people that pick up and handle tarantulas, I'm not big on that. I've done it, but I don't like it. So I get the people that feel that way about snakes. But I'm not terrified because there's a tarantula there. Though some of them will throw their hairs and it's itchy as crap. That's more more likely than them biting you. right? So I, I get that, but you really have to let it sink in that you would allow an animal that could tear your throat out to climb up onto your lap and you'd pet it but then you're afraid of an animal that couldn't hurt you if it tried just because of its shape and just because of the mythology around it and just because other animals that look like that could harm you. Because you shouldn't be doing that with a rattlesnake or a copperhead or a cobra. Those things are actually dangerous. Those things can actually do you harm. They can either seriously harm your flesh and do massive damage or they can possibly kill you. But we walk around and bees buzz around us all the time. Most dangerous animal in the world. Don't even realize it. The bee is the most dangerous animal on planet Earth. It kills more people every year than anything else. But only the people that are allergic to it. But if you've never been stung, you don't know if you're one of them. We don't run around terrified every time we see the most dangerous animal on the planet. Hmm. We shouldn't. But we shouldn't be afraid of small creatures that can't harm us. We should understand food and water. And not just scientifically, though we should. We should also understand them interactively. And we don't do enough of that. You know, like take the kids out for a, a trip to a nature center or something, you know, two or three times over 12 years, and that's that's covered that base. Bullshit. Absolute preposterous bullshit. Kids should be in touch with the earth on a daily basis because it's the thing that sustains us, and it's the source of all life, and it's the source of all wealth. Without the natural resources of the planet, there's no wealth, there's no energy, there's nothing. Everybody dies. So they're the most sacred and most important things to protect. But instead we want to tax carbon and make like that fixes the problem. Why will people buy into such stupidity? Because they're not connected to the ecology itself. To understand how much more is necessary. Even if you believe in the mainstream definition of global warming. Taxing carbon won't do anything. In fact, stopping using fossil fuels won't fix the problems we've created. Even if global warming's real. And if you are in touch with ecology, you know exactly why I'm saying that. Because the damage that we've done in so many places is so much beyond whether the planet's a degree or two warmer. Destruction of fungal webs, the destruction of, of ecosystems, the draining of swamps, the desertification of land. Uh, it, it, it's just phenomenal what damage has been done. The ripping off of mountaintops for the, the, to go after coal. Far more dangerous than the, 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 the CO2 that's released when you burn it. The complete destruction of ecosystems. And a society is misled because they don't understand the actual fundamental reality 
of the ecology you should be acting, interacting with on a daily basis. The next one, food production, cooking, and preservation. I took a cooking class in high school. I did because there were a bunch of girls in the class, so I thought that would be cool, right? And, and when I saw how little the eggs were we were going to be cooking for breakfast one day, I brought my own two big old giant eggs from the chickens at the house in. And I remember some of the kids, even in the place I grew up, going, they're from your own chickens? Are, are they safe to eat? <laughs> This is impossible Pennsylvania. Think about that. Kids in, in high school, possible, are those safe to eat? Because they're from your own chickens. And they're eating an egg that's been irradiated and probably is six months old. And, and put in some surplus program for students to learn to cook. They probably don't even have that anymore. At least you learn like how to, you know, cook basically. But we don't, we don't teach kids anymore. I know many of you are saying, I'm teaching my kids this. That's great. That's great. But my point is, it's not a normal thing. It's considered odd that your kid would learn how to make pickles. Or grow a cucumber so they can make pickles. Or grow garlic so that they can saute it with chicken. I, that's odd. That that would be a normal thing that every child would learn. That's like, oh my God, how would you do that? I don't know. Everybody eats. What if we had schools where kids took turns cooking for other kids? That would be one example. Then you'd have to learn how to cook. It's really pretty simple. But we don't teach that. We're disconnected from our food supply. For F's sake, what's more important than your food supply? How could we take something so critical to our life and our health and just go, nah, we'll teach them about the food pyramid. Oh, it's a plate now, so it's easier to understand, like a pyramid wasn't. By the way, the food pyramid is about the same as a bag of cattle feed and its distribution of carbohydrates, fat, and protein. Well, that makes a lot of freaking sense. Well, it does if you're raising cattle as a society, doesn't it? And, and so how can we have all these mainstream lies about nutrition? Fat is terrible. You should eat only vegetables and grains and small amounts of meat. And it's complete bullshit. The science doesn't back it up if you look at real science. And people just go, okay, it says low fat, I'll buy that. And you're eating pure sugar, but it's low fat. Why? Because you don't know anything about food production, cooking, preservation. You don't know anything about the food itself. So it doesn't surprise me that the recommended food for the average person matches cattle when we're treated like cattle and behave like cattle. Next one, basic preparedness, right? The stuff we talk about all the time. Extra food, extra water, extra money, flashlights, batteries, extra radios, steak, just basic preparedness. But see, I, I, I almost don't like the term preparedness anymore, or prepper, or survivalist. I do, but on parts of me I don't, because it misses the whole point. What I actually call it is lifestyle resiliency. See, if you have some money put away, and you have all these other things we talk about, and some sort of event occurs that's inconvenient, your lifestyle is still resilient. You can still continue to live the way that you always have. Or even if you have to back off it for a minute, you can get back on the path you wanted to be on. It is preposterous that we do not teach this. Prepping 101 should be a class kids take in third freaking grade. Seriously. 
Here's how to be prepared to make sure you can eat tomorrow. Here's how to be prepared to make sure you can pay your bills tomorrow. Here's how you can be prepared to make sure that you have clean water to drink. Here's how to make sure you're prepared to help your neighbor. Prepared. But if, if, if the word prepper is, 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 is hurt for you for whatever reason, it's lifestyle resiliency. That's what preparedness is. To, to not have that be a core fundamental teaching of our society is sacrilegious to me. It's the most asinine, repulsive thing in the world, except I know why they do it. I bet some of you are starting to think about that too. The next one is conflict resolution. We don't teach kids to resolve conflicts. We suspend them. We expel them. We write them up. We make them stand in corners. Uh, we tell them they're both wrong to shake hands even though they still hate each other. And we take whole shitloads of kids that don't like each other and make them stand in confined space. You know what this is like? This is like a fish tank. Okay? You get a fish tank. has everything fish need to be happy. And you put too many fish in it. And all the fish don't have a place that they can go have their own little spot. Conflicts arise. Now, the fish can't solve the conflict because fish is just a fish and it knows, I need resources, I need territory, I need to fit in, and there's a weaker fish that wants my stuff. Even if I can't beat that fish over there, I can beat this fish over here, beat them up real good, and claim this for myself, and the bigger one will have the one that's slightly better. School. That's school. That is school. They can't get out of the tank. Because you take all those fish and put them in a lake and everybody gets along fine except the ones that eat each other. But we don't put fish that eat each other in a tank together unless we're feeding fish. You know, When you have conflicts between angelfish and barbs, it's because they're too close together, the barbs are insecure, the angelfish looks weak because it has flowing fins, so they attack it and they peck at it. And sometimes what's amazing is in a tank you can have barbs and angelfish if you put enough barbs in. But they have a big enough school, and when they have a big enough school, they feel secure, so they kind of stay in their school and they don't bother other fish. Put two or three of them in there and they peck the hell out of an angelfish or any fish with long fins. So the conflict resolution has to come from the person that's managing the aquarium. But children aren't fish. People aren't fish. We tell kids, stand up to a bully. Well, what the hell does that mean? Do you know how stupid you sound when you say that? I think kids should just be taught to stand up to their bullies. Listen, listen, moron that says that. I've said it too, and I was a moron when I said it. Bullies don't pick on other kids unless they know that they are superior physically to those other kids or they have enough numbers in a bully gang that they can hold that kid down. That's, that, and the reason most, now there's some psychopaths. Right? And there's 10% scumbags in all walks of life. But most bullies are doing what the fish is. I need status. I need status. I need comfort. I need friends. So if I can use my ability to push these other people down to feel good about myself, I'll do it. Well, why are they doing that? Most kids don't go out and do that shit until you put them into a confined space. If you're going to put people in confined space, you've got to teach them conflict resolution. And a conflict resolution is usually pretty simple if we don't have people in this mentality. You want something, I want something. We usually can work that out logically. Conflict resolution requires that we know how to defend ourselves physically and emotionally and mentally. Conflict resolution also requires that we don't dedicate 
any of our energies to fighting battles that are unnecessary. Like when somebody says, on a playground, for instance, the kid says, this is my swing, you can't have it. Well, if the other kid didn't want it in the first place, who gives a damn? Enjoy your swing, dumbass. We don't, we don't teach people that. We, we don't teach proactive conflict resolution. We don't teach people how to be the peacemaker between two others in conflict. We teach them to take sides. Almost like there's always a right side and a wrong side. You just have to pick the right one. We never teach that both sides could be completely wrong and that the solution lies in correcting both problems. Because how would that person vote? <laughs> All right? So conflict resolution. We don't teach risk-taking and mitigation of the risk so that we can take the risk responsibly. We teach kids to play it safe. We teach adults to play it safe. You screw up at work, everybody wants to jump your shit. I remember one time I put a presentation together, kind of slapped it together in 10 minutes for a marketing program. And it was for a larger company where you got a, you know, a big meeting of staff. You got like 12 people in there. I made a spelling mistake. People couldn't wait to point it out. Sorry, this isn't for customers to see. This is for us to discuss. I did this in five minutes. None of you did anything. But you want to look at a spelling mistake? Not their fault. Conditioned. Conditioned. If there's a fault with it, ooh, it's scary. It's wrong. Let's look at the overall writing idea, because I can fix that spelling mistake with a backstroke and a different letter. That's not important to the whole thing. Risk-taking and mitigation. Kids are afraid to take a risk on a project in school because it's important to get an A. And you wonder why that kid can't, can't do you know independent thinking at a job. How the hell could you expect that they would? And there's 40 years old and 50 year old people who are exactly in that same place. They usually have gotten through some of it because they've had to, but they still are held back. They won't take a risk. Now, again, I'm not talking about stupid risk because the whole thing is risk-taking and mitigation. If you want to start your own business, you don't just quit your job tomorrow with no idea how you're going to do it. Now, for some people, that actually is a, a bona fide shot in the dark that could work out. It's probably not the best. But if you, you know, currently work at, at Joe's Tacos for minimum wage and you live in your parents' basement, it may be a completely valid thing to do. But if you have two people, little kids, depending on you and a, and a, and a spouse, and you're, you're, you're making $50,000, $80,000 a year or something like that, and you have benefits and all that stuff and you just walk away, that's not being smart. So we have to figure out how do we transition? What is our transitional process? But it's not even that. It's simple things. I've learned to cook. I've got a recipe. I kind of like the idea of it, but I'd like to change it and alter it, try something different. And people won't do it. People won't do it. Like, 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 like the world will explode. We've been so conditioned to believe you have to follow the rules. There's some rules you have to follow. Like... The laws of gravity, you drop shit, it falls, so don't walk off a building, it'll hurt. But there's so many rules that are fake, there's so many rules employed by the conditioned fellow monkey to hold you down because something bad might happen. Try this a little experiment. Tell somebody that cares about you, I think I'm going to go open a restaurant. Oh, what, what? Oh, have you ever heard? I mean, God, how are you going to do that? You're this, anyway. But watch, if you went and told the same person, you know what? I've already opened a restaurant. Where? Can I come? 
Think about that. Let that burn in. You know it's true. You know there's people in your life, if you went told, and if you wouldn't ever think of opening a restaurant, they wouldn't even believe you. Think of something you might do. I'm going to quit my job and go into the business of building custom motorcycles. Whatever. Oh, look, it's risky, and oh, my God, why would you do? Uh, you got it made where you're at. You know, you're making good money, whatever it is, right? All these objections. But if you change it to, hey, you know what I did? I opened a motorcycle shop. We're open for business, and uh, we're down on Main Street. Where is it? Can I come? Okay, that just defined the entire problem of not being willing to take risks and mitigate those risks. If you don't teach people how to mitigate risks, it's going to be natural that they fear them. So we need to teach people that there's certain risks that the consequences of failure are so small you just do it and see if it works. There's certain risks that the consequences are a little painful, but as long as we have a plan for what we do if there's a failure, basic risk mitigation... It's not that big a deal. Then there's some risks that are really taking that freaking Hail Mary pass. And we better really have a good plan alongside of it as how to recover from it if it fails. Then you have a nation of sensible risk takers instead of a nation of freaking cowards. And that's what we've been bred into as a nation of freaking cowards. We also don't teach people networking. We teach, especially in schools, we teach students that there's a social hierarchy. And whoever's got the most influence and control is right. And you want to be like them. You can't network in that environment. Anybody that's ever been in business and, and attended things like Chamber of Commerce mixers and stuff like that, there's no like superiority complex in anybody. You know, do you bring value to the group? That's there. But it's not like, oh, that's Chip. He's the prom king. And that's Mary. She's the prom queen. And we all kiss their ass every day. That's a phony world. But the programming remains when we go to work. We have popular people and unpopular people and shit like that in a job. It makes for a well-organized office environment of controlled individuals that do whatever you want them to do. But it does not make for people that are really successful. It just doesn't. So networking is the most valuable skill you can have. You need to know how to do something. You don't know how to do it. You found it online. You're still not sure. Who knows the most about this? Tom does. You call Tom. Tom goes, yeah, I know something about that. But I'll tell you what, this guy Jake I know. This guy, he knows more about that than anybody else. Let me put you in touch with him. That's networking. You need a job. You can start sending resumes to, to blind inboxes and hoping somebody gives you a call. Or you can go out to your contacts and say, hey, I, you know, this is my background, this is my career. Do you know anybody in this industry? Yeah, I know somebody in that industry. They're over here. Would you give me an introduction? We had to make a computer program called LinkedIn for that shit to happen because people didn't know how to do it anymore. If you're in sales, you know how to do this. Otherwise, most people have no idea how to network. I worked for a guy when I worked in a tech field at a big company, you know, end of year meeting where everybody comes in for Christmas and that stuff. And he says, everybody in this audience that's in sales, put your hands up. And we had reps, so there were only four actual sales managers. And each of us had an inside salesperson. So there were eight salespeople in a company of about 500 people. We all put our hands up. And he said, first of all, look at those people with their hands up. They are the infantry. They're out there on the front line. And he quoted Winston Churchill and said, never have so many owed so much to so few. That's how I feel about the Salesforce infantry. Because they put food on all of your tables But every single one of you goes, put your hands down, right? And you're kind of circling because you don't want to be talked about like that. That's a little too much, right? But he says, every one of you should be ashamed. We didn't put your hands up. Every single of this company should be involved in the sales process. 
Every single person in this company should be telling others where they work and what they do, and that's part of selling. And, and if somebody says, well, I know somebody that's in you know IT over here, well, hey, one of our guys should talk to him. Because you should have a vested interest in the success of the company. People didn't feel like they had a vested interest in the success of the company. But maybe if they understood networking, they would. Because they'd realize that every time they create a connection for two people, they create a new connection and a new a new sort of karmic debt for themselves. Before I started doing this, I was working for a company called Sage Telecom. I made a pretty good salary. It was an easy job. I telecommuted two days a week. I could have done the job in 20 hours a week. And I didn't give a shit, and everybody left me alone after a couple weeks. I didn't really want the job, but I kind of like still needed some money, and it didn't seem like a bad place to be. There were some cool things going on and things like that. The company got purchased by some people that were really scummy, and they were going through a downsizing program and, and, and getting rid of people and outsourcing jobs and streamlining everything and basically tearing the company apart and stripping it down, and then they were going to take as much money out of it as they could, ride it almost to the bottom, and then dump it. That was their business model. And you could look at every other company they bought and see that. But they were looking for people, and they, they found me. And they're like, yeah, you have a real future with us. And I'm like, this company has no future. They're like, you understand that, and that's why you have a future with us. I felt like I was talking to Satan. I'm like, I've seen this before. I've seen this before, and I don't want any part of it. This has now come from farming to mining. And I made two phone calls and had two job offers, both of them that were $40,000 a year more than that job. I didn't get my resume. I didn't even have a resume. The company that I went to work for is a company that Neil Franklin ran, ran. And we found it, like, within a month, we created another company that we ran together. But the only reason I had a resume at all was because they had a reasonable HR department, and one of the procedures was there has to be a resume on file. So I, I didn't have a resume for the job that I was working when the Sharks came and took over the company either because that was from another networking contact who just said, hire this guy. He's fit for the job. Okay. So my, my last resume was two jobs ago, so I just put some bullshit on about the last two jobs and handed it to the HR girl. And she starts giving me tips. She doesn't like functional resumes. But I'm like, I already have the offer letter. That's where your filing cabinet. That's what networking does. If you're good at what you do and you have a strong network, you always have a place to go. Now, that seems like something that's pretty freaking valuable. Why wouldn't we teach people how to do this? Saving it. Biting my tongue, saving it. But networking, for those reasons and for so many other that will become abundant to you, abundantly obvious to you over time. Next is sales and marketing. We don't teach those to, to students. Well, that's only if you're going to be a sales professional or marketing professional. Hey, you want a job? Yeah, first you have to market yourself. And once you successfully market yourself, then you have to go for an interview, and you have to close that deal by selling yourself. And the better job you do, the more benefits, the more money, and the better terms you'll get at the end of that. That seems pretty freaking important since everybody's supposed to go up and get a job, according to the system. But we won't teach people sales and marketing Okay, you want to have a great life and you want to find a partner in your life to marry or to if you don't marry to to live together, you know, in a bonded covenant, however you define it. So you want something like that. So you need to date. Dating's marketing, right? That's how you meet people through marketing and networking. And then when you meet someone that you think would be interesting enough to take out on a date, you have to ask them for a date. That's a sale. 
That's I'm valuable enough to take a shot at. Some people say, well, the good-looking people just get dates, but they usually get people, they get dates with people that are equally useless in many ways. There's no real connection. There's no real understanding of who each other is. And, and, and you know what we do is we beat marketing and sales out of children. I wrote a book with Neil called The Inner Salesman. I think it's still available on Lulu. It's not my, it's not my greatest work. Um, I hate to say this, but in some ways I feel like I should have written it alone without Neil. Because uh, there were some things that Neil added to it that I'm like, yeah, but we, you, you do that when you're co-authors. It's kind of a small book, but it's called Your Inner Salesman. And the whole premise is that you're born knowing how to sell. And, and parents literally beat the, the shit out of kids so that they can't do it anymore. And then you say, well, why aren't you more excited about going for college interviews to get into a university? Well, maybe it's because when they were a kid and their great aunt or somebody offered them money, you told them not to take it. Or maybe when they were at a friend's house and they asked for something, you told them it was rude to ask for something. So you've taught children not to take things that others want to give you and not to ask for things from others that you want. And you wonder why they can't then do that later in life. This, this ties in a whole bunch of the ways we beat the shit out of our, our kids. And many times we mean well. Here's an example. You're somewhere. Let's say you're at your parents' house, so your kids are with you, so it's grandma. Grandma does something nice for your son or daughter. And it's something in the effect that the child should respond with, thank you. Without giving it freaking two seconds for that kid to figure out to say thank you, you say what? Tell grandma thank you. Stop doing that shit to your kids. When I was a kid, that used to piss me off. It's like, I, what you're insinuating is a couple things. One, I'm too dumb to know to say thank you. Now, a two-year-old, okay. But I'm talking about a kid's like five or six. They know to say thank you. Give it a minute. And if they don't, instead of saying, tell grandma thank you, take the kid aside, hey, you know, you forgot to say, oh, I'm sorry. And then let them go do it themselves in their own time. They will if you give them their own time. Because let me tell you what else you're doing. When you, I want you to put yourself in this place. Let's say you came to my house, all right, as an adult, and you brought a friend or you brought your father. Let's make it really, yeah, yeah. You're, you're in your 30s. You brought your daddies in his 50s, okay? The two of you are sitting in my living room, and I say, would you guys like a beer? And you say yes. I go to the fridge, get a couple of beers, bring them back, hand one to your old man. He says, thanks. I hand you yours, and you just don't say anything for a second for whatever reason. Maybe you were checking your phone. Maybe you were scratching yourself, whatever, right? And your dad says within five seconds, hey, tell Jack thank you. Tell me you wouldn't want to get up and smack your dad in the face. Guess what? When you're five-year-old, you do your five-year-old, he wants to smack you, he's just little. Now, I'm not talking about not teaching manners here. I'm talking about allowing the interactions and rules of etiquette give the kid a chance. Because what, what you're doing is you're devaluing it in the mind of the child. So you're a kid. Now let's go back to being a kid. I just gave you something. You say, tell Uncle Jack thank you, and you do it right in front of me. To the child, the child's thinking, but it doesn't mean anything if you make me do it. Reminding me is one thing, but you just, you're, I mean, you're, you're putting words in my mouth. Let me say it. And this ties right into being able to market and sell yourself because you ask for an order, the person responds with closing the deal, and you say thank you. It's a natural exchange, value for value. Most of us, as adults that have decent etiquette and manners, That when somebody does something nice for us and we say thank you, 
we don't say it because we were taught to say it. We say it because we genuinely feel gratitude. And we want to express that gratitude because it's natural and human. It happens all the time. It happens in cultures all over the world that there's a gratitude reciprocity. That is the foundational components to sales and marketing. And, and let's define sales and marketing, okay? Marketing is telling a story to create interest. Sales is transferring a belief. That's it. That's really all you need to know. And it's normal human behavior until we beat it out of our children. So we should condition people to be willing to ask for what they want, but to do so in an ethical and moral way, not to teach them that it's bad to ask for things or it's bad to take money from people. Imagine if we condition kids to believe taking stuff from people who care about you and willingly want to give it to you is somehow wrong. And then we expect them to go out and get things in life that they want from people willing to give it to them. All right, next one, critical thinking. We won't go too deep into this. I've done whole shows on it. But critical thinking requires that we teach people to figure out what they want answers about and determine answers from all the information they can gather. Where instead, the way cheap people are conditioned in life from school into employment is they're told, you must do this or that. This is what's important. And here's what you need to know about it rather than what do you feel is important and what can you learn about it. And if we just did that alone, we would inspire critical thinking. And I'm going to let that one go short. And the last one is most important that ties all this shit together is self-directed learning. By telling people that this is what you have to learn about, there, there's no incentive for self-directed learning. We've actually created a system where the way that learning takes place, is your, the, the question is defined for you, The answer is defined for you, and if you can parrot the answer, you're right. And if you parrot the answer in any way that's not the way you're supposed to, you're wrong. There's no way a person that thinks that way can be a self-directed learner. All they become is an answer gatherer. So yes, most kids today can use Google to get the answer to their homework, but I got a question, I'm going to go to hell with the book. I'm going. At least they're smart enough to figure that shit out. They go on Google, what year... Did Paul Revere take his famous ride? Okay. All right, there's the answer. Put the answer down. Okay. What year did the Liberty Bell crack? Search. Okay. That's not self-directed learning. Self-directed learning would be a person that has the honest question. How did this nation become what it is? And then starts researching the story. Or the person that says... I want to be able to build a fire pit and actually goes out and figures out how to do it. Or a person that says, I want to go into business breeding snakes, like I did, right? I did that for a while. And just starts talking to people and figures out how you do it, learns from people already doing it, figures out, well, what do I want to go into? And then takes all these other skills and applies them to make that into a viable concern. Self-directed learning is a natural human thing. Most of you, what do you guys do all the time when you want to learn something new? One of the first questions people have, what's a good book on this? Now, do you remember being forced to read in school? But yet when you want to know something, you'll spend your own money to buy a book and you'll spend your own time to read it. Or you'll spend your money in your, 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 to support a podcast and your time to listen to it if it teaches you things you want to learn. 
So lear we act as though learning has to be you know heaped upon children and heaped upon people. People are natural learners, but but self-directed learning is a skill, and all skills need development. So we need to teach people how to research what you want to know. Right? This goes to the core of the trivium: grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And and I've been asked to do a whole show on that, and I might, but. In the in the end, the, the the short version is that you're able to define for yourself that which you wish to learn. You're able to gather information and form an independent opinion on that, and then you're able to express that opinion verbally, textually, or artistically in such a way that others understand the meaning of what you're transferring. You can only do that with self-directed learning. That cannot be taught in a formulaic educational system. It can't be. It's impossible. Because the entire concept of forming your own opinion based on independent research from multiple sources is completely incongruent with modern education. Oh, you might get a little taste of it if you take a journalism class or the one paper they have you write a year. But in your day-to-day -day studies in school, you're not going to do that. You're going to be told what to learn, told how to get the information, told how to repeat the information, told, 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 told. That's why we have a generation of people sit around waiting to be told what to do instead of doing shit. And, and want to base what they do on the fact that somebody else did it exactly a certain way and I'm just going to repeat it. That's a good starting point for a lot of things. But in the end, if you live in an intellectual's world, you never do anything except tell other people what they're doing wrong. Sound familiar? All right. So how do we fix this, right? The way I have it in the show notes, how do you fix your shit? No one will do it for you. Okay. First step, go through my list of 14. Identify your strengths and weaknesses from that list and be effing honest about it. Rate yourself on 1 to 10. And if you put any 10s down and you ain't kicking ass in life, you're lying. Right? So you go through and you say, okay, let's see. On real financial management, how well am I actually pulling that off in life? So-so, five. Troubleshooting. How good am I at actually figuring shit out and fixing problems? Real good at that. Eight. Systems thinking. Huh. That's a big word that Jack uses all the time that pisses me off because I don't really get it yet. One. Whatever it is for you. Go through them all. Just like that. Just, and, and That is actually not going to result in you saying, well, I, this, I'm a one on this, so I really need to work on this, and I'm a five on that, so I really can work on that a little bit, and then I, I'm like a nine on this, so screw that. It's just to help you be honest with yourself. So it brings an awareness. Then every day, for a year, work on each one in rotation for 10 minutes a day, like I talked about yesterday. So today, I'm going to improve my financial acute for 10 minutes. In addition to everything else I'm going to do in my life, I'm going to dedicate 10 minutes to learning something about financial management that I didn't know. Okay, Tomorrow, next on the list, troubleshooting. I'm going to consider a problem and determine a solution, or I'm going to research about a certain problem that I know about and what are the solutions to that, just 10 minutes. See, you remember shit when you only do it for 10 minutes. Okay. Then the next thing I'm going to do is a systems thinking thing. I'm, I'm going to just... Since I don't get that one, I'm going to look up systems thinking and get... Just today, all I'm going to do is get an understanding of the concept, because that one's really weak for me. Next day, real historical context. I'm going to go research a historical fact and derive a context that applies to life from it for me today. Ten minutes. Mechanical comprehension. 
I'm going to go look at some piece of physical engineering for 10 minutes, either pictures of it or actually look at it, touch it, feel it, and just consider how it works for 10 minutes today. Next day, interactive ecology. I'm going to go take a walk in the woods and I'm going to identify something, a plant that I didn't know existed and find out what it is. Take a picture of it. If I can't find it simply, I'll post it on a forum somewhere and maybe it takes me more than, it takes 10 minutes for this pro, more than 10 minutes for this process to wear out, but I don't have to do anything. They're going to tell, people are going to help me. I'm networking, by the way. They're holistic. They all go together. And I'm going to learn what that one plant is. You'll never forget what that plant is. I can take you through the woods and show you 20 plants, what they are, what they do, how there's medicine, food, or dangerous, or what animals eat them. You won't remember one of them. If you learn one every other week, by the end of the year, you'll have 26 plants you didn't know that you'll know all that shit about, and you will, you could not forget it unless you end up with Alzheimer's disease. You, you couldn't force yourself to forget it. All right? Then, the next day, I'm going to go into food production. I'm going to teach myself a new recipe, a 10-minute recipe. I'm going to cook something. Or I'm going to research how to preserve a certain food. Even if I don't do it, I'm just going to become aware of a way that you could do that with. Or, you know what? I use a lot of eggs, so I'm going to learn one recipe today, even if I don't cook it today on how I can cook eggs. I'm just going to think about it. All right? Then, from there, basic preparedness. Okay, today I'm going to, I'm going to just sit for 10 minutes and think about my life and where my biggest risk point is and just figure out one thing I can do to, to mitigate that risk point. Done. Right? You just keep going. You just keep going. Networking. I'm going to connect with someone today I haven't talked to in a long time and have a 10-minute conversation with an old friend and find out what's going on in their life and see if there's any way that I can help them. That's networking, folks. That, it's not a sleazy thing salespeople do to get ahead. That's what networking is. Networking is, who can I find that I can help? So I'm going to do that 10 minutes today. Right? And then the next one is sales and marketing. I'm going to think about something that I have of value. And I'm going to think about how I can tell a story about that value and then how I can transfer my belief in that thing to another person. And maybe I'll even try it on somebody. But for the first time around, I'm just going to identify something like that. The next day, critical thinking. I'm going to say to myself today, this is free day. I have 10 minutes to learn about something that I don't know a lot about that I just want to know about. So I'm going to have to first define for myself. So I might get up that morning and say, critical thinking is on my list today. I have until when I get off work today at 5 o'clock to figure out what the hell I want to learn about today and form an opinion on it. With no none of my friends telling me what to think, no trusted sources, completely independent research. I'm just going to do 10 minutes of research. and form. Now, it's not my final opinion, but it's at least it's an initial opinion that's based on my own determination of that. Self-directed learning. Okay, it's the end of a cycle. That's why I put it there. Based on my last 13 days, what is my biggest question that's come up of something I want to know how to do? I'm going to find out how to do that for 10 minutes today. Now, actually doing it may take more than 10 minutes, but I'm going to find out. The mental exercise here is huge. If we put children through this 14-day repetitive cycle in our school systems, My God, can you imagine who would be, what kind of graduates would be creating after 12 years of this? And, and some days you may spend more than 10 minutes on this. But just make the minimum commitment. I'm going to spend 10 minutes focused on these skills every day in a rotational cycle. Next, in this process, 
You should be searching for and seeking, and probably naturally will come into touch with the passions in your life, what you love. And when you find those things, trust yourself and be willing to apply some risk mitigation and, and go for it. The next thing, chart a course. Eventually you'll figure out, this is what I really want, this is where I am, and this is all of the things necessary to get from one to the other, and it's scary and it's a long process, but every journey begins with a step. So what is my first step? What is my second? What is my third? What is my fourth? Don't even judge the time. Because you might chart a course in five years and think, man, that's, that's going to be tough to do. And you might do it in two. Or you might chart it in five and it might take ten years to get there. But if the journey's worth it and the destination's worth it, it's ten years well spent. That's making the most of your dash. So chart the course and stick to it. And learn to navigate around storms. Realize that you're, you know, there, there's an old saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Okay? Shit's going to go wrong. Things are going to break. Things are going to get screwed up. It's going to happen. So sometimes you can look out ahead and you can see there's a problem coming. Rather than going headlong into that problem and derailing the shit out of myself, I'm going to adjust for the problem before it even gets here. I'm going to use the martial arts technique of redirecting my opponent's energy. Instead of striking the opponent, I'm going to send him into a wall and let his own, his own body do the damage against an immovable object. And by the time he comes to, I'll, I'll just walk away. I won't even be there. So sometimes we can navigate around storms. Sometimes we can navigate the edge of a storm. We take on some damage, but we didn't go straight into the eye. So be prepared to adapt and adjust as you're doing this. And develop basic preparations, right? So that's part of the steps where you have to be, be looking ahead and seeing these storms and start getting prepared for them. Because not every storm is a thunderstorm or a snowstorm or an ice storm or a hurricane. Some storms are a downturn in the market, losing a job. Some storms are the product you thought was going to work didn't. So storms are always going to come. So we need to be prepared for how do we deal with the damage. And then I think the most important thing I can leave you with today is another quote, a little bit paraphrased, but this is from author Richard Bach in the book Illusions. Some context before I give it to you. The book Illusions is about what it would be like if a Messiah came today, right? He wouldn't be in churches. He'd be out with the people, meeting people in some trade or something. And in this case, the character is named Donald Shimoda. Donald Shimoda flies airplanes for $3 a ride with an old airplane, like a biplane. People pay 3 bucks, they get in, he flies them around, and they come back down to the ground, and they keep doing that. And he meets the author, Richard, in a field, and they have long conversations. And at one point he says, how do you know all these things? How do you have all this wisdom? And he's like, they give you a book. We're just like, a book? A magic book? And Don's like, hey, hold on, I got it. Here, here. He throws it. Here, here. You can look at it. He opens it up. He's like, how's it work? He said, whatever question you have on your mind, you just open it. And whatever page you open it to, the saying will tell you what you need to do about it. It's like a magic book. And he goes... It actually works with any book, if you think. You do it with Snoopy Comic, and it'll work. There's all these different sayings in the book. I think one of the most profound is, the best way to avoid responsibilities is to claim you have responsibilities. There's so many responsibilities that we have to live to our fullest potential, and we say, but I have all these other things that have to be done. I have all these other responsibilities that preclude me from doing what I really should be doing. 
that takes some emotional maturity to really allow it to sink in because it takes away so many of your excuses. Those other responsibilities do exist, but there's ways to meet those obligations and still move on to greater responsibilities. We don't teach this stuff in school, though, do we? The stuff that I just gave you, if applied to the next generation of our citizenry in this nation, could transform it into, I believe, the promise that it never came up to. I believe it really could. I believe if we had people who simply understood how to manage money for, for real, to troubleshoot, to think at a systems level, to use true historical context, to have mechanical comprehension, to understand how things work and why they work and how to make new things that work even better, if we had interactive ecology training going on on a constant basis where people became connected with their planet and their place in it and an understanding of where food, medicine, and fibers really come from, a concept that where all wealth comes from, people had the ability to, to feed themselves and to preserve food and to share food and to formulate food. They had basic preparedness so when something went wrong, they didn't immediately need somebody to help them every single time. People understood how to resolve conflicts with each other. If people understood you can take risks, you should take risks, and there's a way to mitigate those so you can take more risks because those that risk eventually find the rewards. People knew how to network so they could gain assistance and help others and enable others who want to get things done and never be without employment because if they're a valued person, someone somewhere needs them and all, it, all it's missing is the connections in between. If people knew how to sell and market themselves and ideas effectively so that they could actually take an idea that they have that could work but isn't working because they don't have enough to get it done and to sell the world on the idea so that people that are, are capable of making it a reality. Because sometimes some people are better thinkers than, than implementers. We all have different strengths. If people could truly convey the value that they have so that others understood it and wanted to recipro provide reciprocity that's equal, there'd be a lot less conflict in the first place. There'd be less need of the resolution. People could critically think and actually ask their own questions and then define their own answers instead of being told what to think. And people were self-directed learners. They were able to go out and learn the things they really were passionate about, they really wanted to know, and effectively translate that learning into action. What kind of world would we have? See, we've been lied to. We've been told that like all of the solutions are outside of ourselves. We need the government to do this or this government to stop doing that. You get a society doing this shit right here. The government can't do shit. This is uncontrollable. And that brings me to my final thought. There's a reason they don't teach you this shit. And that should motivate you. The reason we don't teach these skills to our youth today, and the reason they weren't taught to most of us, is because this is a recipe for a free, independent society of self-governing individuals who can run their own lives. And if you want to control people, if you want power over people, if you want things done the way you want them done, and you need a few million people to be doing what they're told to do on a daily basis to get it done, you cannot have this. This is anarchy. This is insurrection. This is a refusal to comply with a system that's been hoisted upon you. And the people that run the system would view this as anarchy. 
Everybody just learning shit the way they want to learn? Oh my, how will they ever do what we say again? People with independent opinions? No. They have to have A or B opinions. We can manage A and B. If there's 500 people with 500 valid, uh, valid opinions about a subject that all have different ways that they want to approach a solution, all competing for the idea, for, for others to engage with them in that solution, there'll be 40 solutions that actually work and they'll actually fix shit. Then we won't have a problem to scare them with. This should motivate the shit out of you. When I was going through doing this for 10 minutes a day, if you're thinking, I'd like to do that, but I, do you want freedom or don't you? Do you want to be prepared for life or do you want life prepared for you? Let me say that again. Do you want to be prepared for life or do you want life prepared for you? Because I want to be prepared for life. When life is prepared for you, that means that handlers, people that are in charge, set up a structure and there's like five primary paths at different class levels. You know, there's the wage slave at the very bottom. You know, actually there's the complete welfare recipient that's dependent at the bottom. And then there's like that wage slave, the working poor. And then there's like that lower middle class. There's that middle, true middle class, upper middle class, affluent. The elite, forget that shit. You're not getting in there. If you're following this pathway, you're going to go somewhere in those five. And society wants you to take the path that leads to one of those. They don't give a shit which one you go into. Just damn well go into one and do it the way you're told. Do you want that? Do you want that simple of a life? Where here's your path, here's your formula, do what I say, follow that path, and you'll end up there. Or do you want to say, I'm going to chart my own damn course. I'm going to take risks because that's what people do. I'm going to define my own life. I'm going to control my own life. And I'm going to teach myself how to live the life that I want. I'm not going to rely on somebody else to do it. That if there's a place for a, a, a more formalized education... I'll seek that where it suits my goals. There's a reason they don't teach this. There's a reason. And that should be all the motivation you need to make yourself learn these things and to teach your children and your grandchildren and the others around you how to do these things because they don't want you to. That actually should be all that it takes. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Got a package full of wishes. A time machine, a magic wand. A glow made out of gold. No instructions or commandments. Laws of gravity or indecisions to uphold Printed on the box I see Acme's built a world to be Take a chance, grab a piece Help me to believe Stars now. 
Choose your army, choose your steeple Don't be shy, the satellites can look the other way Lose the earthquakes, keep the force Feel the ocean, put out the soul Let every man own his own California coast, Randolph.